Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, how are you, my friend? Oh my God, this is like the the podcast episode from hell, <laughs> or maybe from heaven. Who knows? Depending on how it works out. But this is interesting because for listeners, this is like the back end of the podcasting story. So Chris and I generally have a pretty tight tech setup, and we we very seldom ever have technical difficulties. But we're moving. We want to experiment with Clubhouse, the new app that's the rage among the young people, as they say, and the old people too. And we wanted to try to experiment with sort of having a studio audience capacity in our podcast. And so we, so we've recorded, we've tried to record twice now and the, and each episode was fantastic. And the second one was even better than the first. And we lost both of the recordings. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just like, so it was so like, it, I think I, it was so frustrating the second time too, because like I said, I loved the first episode we did. And I thought the second one was even better. <laughs> so I mean, I hopefully can't. the third time is the charm. I mean, I'm amazed if you can remember the first episode. Uh, I don't even remember what happened to it. You say you say that we lost. I, I don't oh, know. we had no. Actually, that was we had static on your end of the line. Oh, okay, right. That was my fault somehow. But um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it's anybody's fault. But it was just staticky. Uh, and then yes, yes. So the second, one, I agree. It was very good. We we got so deep into it. Like we we reached insights that. It was, you know, there was like, it was, it was honey dripping from your lips, man. It was, it was that good. Absolutely. Uh, Actually, yeah, it's one of the virtues of the medium I found in, I really enjoyable that we've, um, we, we've had that experience together a lot and, and our listeners, you know, have shared feedback. They've appreciated that where you and I have oftentimes kind of used this format for our, just for our own intellectual journeys. And it's been really rewarding over the past couple of years. And now we're going to start this episode with our question for the third time. Who owns your story? So let's give, you know, when, when we were workshopping, you know, so what are, what are some of the next questions that we're going to be exploring? I really, I really loved, um, I really loved our thinking around, around this question, you know, and, and to me, it's 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 a it's it's like it's like this this campfire um from which there are many interesting paths that that you can explore um you know it it kind of there there are some obvious questions or some obvious topics that flow out from this question about who owns your story now i mean one of them obviously you know kind of has to do with with you know, data privacy and data collection and, you know, what some people call surveillance capitalism, kind of this idea that, you know, we are, we are um, weaving these stories uh, in public, you know, large and often on social media platforms now. And there's, and, and so there's a kind of literal question around who owns that, who owns that data, who owns that, that profile of me, 
uh, what control do I have over it? How does it have control over me? Just in kind of in in our modern digital life, that there's there's kind of there's that pathway from from the campfire of this question. I think that there's another another really interesting pathway around this this um, this relationship that we each have now between sort of the 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 person that I project into the world. Um, that I, I, I kind of advertise this is who Chris is and, and, and how that can, that, that persona can actually take on a life of its own, you know, sometimes can come back and, and, and even attack me, the person and, and, and suddenly your own identity kind of runs away with you. It's no longer in your control. There's, there's this, that kind of phenomenon of, 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 you know, how, how we can get torn apart online uh, for being, you know, perhaps from our perspective, misunderstood. And then, and then I think there's there's kind of a, you know, a third a third pathway, at least for me, and even, you know, it kind of relates to the whole digital identity thing, but but it's sort of this this realization that, you know, we are the content that we consume. You know that that the more the more I tell my story to a watchful world then then the more that world understands what i'm interested in and and feeds me that filtered content which then sort of creates the raw material from which i tell the next chapter of my story and so you know it starts to become this kind of relationship this sort of this dialectic between what i've said you know what i've put out to the world and what the world is now putting back at me um, so that, you know, in some ways, yes, I'm still the author of my story. And in some ways it, the more that I author it in public, the less that I have control over, over what gets written next. And, and, and somehow this one question opens up all of these avenues of conversation and, yeah, and I'm just really excited to have this conversation with you for the third time. For the third time. Yeah, there's so many things that you just said that made me think. And it, so one of the, the first thing that comes to mind is this kind of classic philosophical, anthropological sort of debate. Does human nature change? Right. And you've got certain people that think basically human nature, despite cultural differences and technological advances, that largely remains the same. And there are people like Heidegger that think really the human being changes, that, that being, he calls it, I guess in German it's Dasein, being, human being really changes with time and culture. And, you know, it does seem to me that what we're talking about, the development of the avatar self, right? You've got not just your inner self, you know, people credit St. Augustine in the Confessions with creating the interior self, because, you know, when you read Homer, these characters, like, don't have interior selves, right? But a after Augustine, no one can think without thinking about their in my interior self and then myself in the world. But now, like you're saying, we, there's this third projected self. And I, I, I just tend to think that that changes what it means to be a person when you have another self to manage, right? And then, as you were saying, the complicated thing is it's a self over which agency to, to figure out agency is really complicated. Like 
who, you know, is, is, is the medium, are you right. using the medium to tell your story or is the medium using you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, are we kind of, it's sort of like, um, you know, I, I just think about a film like the matrix where everyone's plugged into that sort of digital reality and they're kind of like all just batteries and they're kind of, you know, and everybody's sort of blissfully just being used by the machine. And I wonder, is that where we're at? <laughs> and, and has, and has the, the creation of this kind of third projected self, what, what does that do? And, yeah, and, and then who, who owns that self, which is, it's a really interesting question. And one that I would guess most people don't think about when we're just doing our thing on social media and things like that. And we're just like, Oh, I'm mean, posting a picture or we're promoting a podcast or this or that. Like, most of the time, we're not thinking existentially, right? We're like, oh my gosh, what does this do to my sense of subjectivity and myself? But maybe we should be asking those questions. Well, we'd have to find a, a simpler form of the question for all of us to be asking it, I think. But, I, you know, it's, it's it, so a lot to pick up there. Maybe just the last thing you said that most people are not thinking about this. But, but I, w I would more turn it around and say, like, I think that we're all in some ways struggling with these questions of self right now. Um, and, it, you know, interesting that you give, you know, in, in your inimitable way, in kind of half a sentence, a couple thousand years of, of really interesting just history of thought. But yeah, to go back to Homer, to to sort of the ancient Greek um, stories of 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 life and living and how there was no inward self. It was just sort of people were their actions. Um, and, and, and we've sort of been on this journey since then of, of, of expanding, like the dis discovering an inner self and then expanding that inner self. And if you think about it, you know, one of the, I guess, just the, you know, crises, of modernity is that right now, you know, there is this dramatic expansion of, of the, of, of the private self underway, you know, the inner self, we, we, we were talking about this, this book that you'd recommended I read in preparation for this podcast, uh, the heretical imperative, which is by Peter Berger. And he wrote this book in 1979. And, and a lot of this book is about how, wow, nowadays, people have so much so much more scope to make choices about who they are um, about what you know what their understanding of self is and and he was grappling with this back in 1979 i i think like there are a couple of great um sentences maybe i can pick up one that i really like yes he talked about how how modernity entails a movement from fate to choice and if you think about nowadays, you know, things that 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 500 years ago were just taken as fate. You don't get to choose these things. You know, you don't get to choose what your gender is. That's something that fate determines. Well, that's not true today. Now that is part of the definition of self. So, so there's this dramatic and ongoing expansion of who I am in, in an inward sense. And at the same time today, there is now this, this dramatic expansion of, of who I am in a projected outward sense and, and, and all of the questions and issues that that, that entails. And, and, you know, and, and there's some 
I don't know. There's some ego. There's some me in the middle of those two giant projects that it feels like they're very important projects because it's who am I? I mean, what's a more important question to me than that? Um, and yet they're so impossibly big that I almost don't know where where to begin. Uh, you know, another uh, quote that I underlined in in this book by Berger, he says, fate does not require reflection. The individual who is compelled to make choices, however, is also compelled to stop and think. The more choices, the more reflection. And I think that that, that too is a, is a great summary of, of the challenge we face today. We have so many choices that we need to reflect upon. Um, and, we, and we don't, one, we don't have the time, but two, you know, we're not even aware of all of the choices that we are making as we are making them, which is sort of to the point that you were making about seven minutes before I started this latest diatribe. Um, and, and so, yeah, who owns your story? It's, it, 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 it's become this, this huge, huge project that we each carry around. It must be crushing. Like, like, do you have any time to get anything done? You almost want to say to people just to, just figuring out yourself is now such a massive project of life. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I was um, I was in a clubhouse room the other day with um. It's interesting. I it's a friend who I didn't know was on Clubhouse and had this group. He's a he's a religious guy and has a kind of men's group that they you know just share their own emotional stuff. And I just participated, and like the, the topic was like, it was um, what do you fear? And so all these guys went around and shared like what they feared. And I wound up sharing that I really feared that my life wasn't significant, you know? And when they asked me what significance would look like, it, it took me so long to tease that out. Whereas like, you know, if you were raised in, you know, Umbria in the 11th century or Naples or something in the 12th century, you're pretty much given a script about what a significant life would look like. Right. right <laughs> like right. if you're in in in, the, in a, a royal family, you have certain responsibilities. Maybe you're the second son like Luther and you wind up going to be a, mon a monk. Like, I mean, you, you and I probably would have wound up in monasteries because we're reflective guys. And that's where academics went. Right. <laughs> they just shipped you to a monastery and you read and debated. And if you were more about wine, women and song, you were kind of, you know, there was a, a life of, of the medieval kind of peasant or shopkeeper and there were pageants and there were ways to tell you how to have a meaningful life. And you just kind of, there's not, no, again, it's, it's, you know, I love Berger's title, the heretical imperative. And the idea is to be a heretic in the middle ages to or be a real free thinker, right. And, and, and go out on your own took a lot of work and a lot of guts because you could die for it. And now, unless you're a heretic, unless you're a free thinker, unless you're an iconoclast, we look at you as though your life is less significant. Mm. Um, and, and then and the, and the interesting thing is, which gets back to who owns the story, how do you, how do you become this uh, author of your own story and, you know, develop your, this avatar? Well, you, it's, it's like, you know, the, like social media, they're like power companies now, right? <laughs> it's like having like electricity or water. Like what business could you start? 
or what religious organization could you start or what kind of nonprofit or think tank could you start without social media today? It would be impossible. It's, if I could pick up on a, on a thread of that, I'm, I'm going to make an inelegant segue, but, but listening to you describe this, I was suddenly thinking about, you know, this phenomenon of your, your social media profile. And, and, you know, if you, if you, you know, look at people's profiles, the, you know, the, the the tortured work that it, that we do that is done to 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 try to craft a a label for oneself that 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 sort of captures that that need to be an iconoclast that you described you know it's it, it, it it's it's completely not done to you know be a manager or, or to be, you know, some, some sort of plain vanilla title from the past. You need, you need to, you need to craft something, you know, you're, 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 you're a venture catalyst. You're, you know, you're um, like a breakthrough innovation wunderkind or something like you know what i'm talking about this look everybody's profile is we're we're looking for that that angle of distinction that kind of speaks to i've got you know i've got a lens i've got i've got this this essential note that needs to be added to the 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 chorus i have noticed this in a way like that's almost nauseating on clubhouse profiles. Oh, okay. Like, so you, you spend a lot more time on clubhouse than me. So. Yeah, it is. So I, I've really observed? gotten, no, I think exactly what you're saying. And, and I think what's interesting too, because of it, which we're on clubhouse. So maybe clubhouse owns this podcast, but um, we're recording through clubhouse right now for our listeners. So if we, by the way, if we have people pop in or something, we normally don't do that, but we're experimenting. We're recording through the clubhouse platform. So you might, you may, or if you're listening in, in the future, we are going to, consider doing this some more. So if you want to talk with us and be on the podcast, you could get on clubhouse and we'll let you know when we're recording. But uh, I've noticed, and I think this is probably because clubhouse is kind of the cool kids social media right now. Cause it's invite only. It, it started iPhone users only, which iPhone folks tend to be a little more, um, you know, early adopter technology folks and stuff. Uh, like it, th- what you're saying about this sort of venture catalyst and stuff I've seen that more in clubhouse profiles than I've seen in any form of social media. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, it's just like all these times. And I've never heard these titles before. Like, and I don't know, like if you were at a cocktail party, you, it's just interesting. Cause you would never say that to somebody at a cocktail party, right? You'd never say I'm a venture catalyst. Cause people would think you were like, hi, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it's totally legitimate when you do it on social media. And in fact, Without it, like you're saying, it's almost like you're just another cog in the machine. Exactly. No, you you summarized it exactly, and 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 I'm not I'm not to criticize it. I'm just I'm just to observe that the there is such an imperative, such a value upon upon self story, and 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 a lot of the energy. I mean, obviously, if if it's on a on a on a social media platform, is the projected self. Um, you know, much more into coming up to a, an appealing 
or or enticing um, mask to wear uh, for others to see, um, you know, rather than that project of 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 kind of self doubt and self inquiry and 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 self discovery. And it's quite it's quite curious actually. Think about it because you know, in a marketing sense, if you're if you're a company that is that is marketing and branding, you're you're looking for you know, the most, the most specific naming of the thing, right? That that's, that's the kind of the nirvana from a, from a branding perspective, from a corporate branding perspective, you keep trying to, you know, you've got thousands and thousands of words and, and you're trying to land on that, that name and that tagline that simply and elegantly says the, the thing that is at the heart of your brand, right? So it's, it's, it's an intentionally reductive exercise. And, and it's interesting that we've, you know, as we moved into social media and everybody is sort of their own brand, right? Your brand, you, that we've, we, we've transported all that has been learned about telling, um, telling a story for, um, you know, a kind of consumer industry to telling our own story. Which, if you think about it that way, seems like uh, a crazy thing to do, you know, that because, because, you know, actually what we want to do is just the opposite. I don't, I don't want to reduce myself down. I want to, I want to, you know, be and recognize more and more of who and all that I am, right? So the, so the project of the projected self and the project of the inner self both these two giant projects that are underway are in some ways for, for a lot of us probably in, in complete opposition to each other. One is trying to get richer and more complex and, 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 and more undefinable, right? More, more of a, of a, of a totality that can't possibly be captured by anyone except my whole life project. And on the other end, trying to like, you know, get it down to that tagline that they're like, oh, yeah, Scott Jones, he's the da da guy. So that everybody else can spread that trope and, and, uh, and help yeah, you expand I, your persona. I signed up for this newsletter kind of thing because um, I, you know, I do a lot of podcast production and stuff. And it was a guy that's actually from Philadelphia and has apparently had some success monetizing two podcasts. And so there's this free kind of masterclass type video and, and everything this class was about, the short video was about, was being reductive. Like, like be as reductive as possible, you know, like have this like, you know, specific, like basically podcast to millennial left-handed Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans or whatever, you know, like, like it's, it's these kind of the absurdity and you're right. It's, it's, I was, I was thinking, and there's probably something like I've been in the podcasting like medium long enough to realize the truth to what he's saying that there is probably something like, like you and I, what we do is probably a little less marketable um, because it, it tugs at this ancient, you know, pre-modern and current desire to, to unify things. I think we want, I mean, I think, you know, Aristotle said, right, we're rational animals. And so he, that's why he thought nature must be, in some sense, you must be able to, through reason and sentiment and, and just, you know, the existential kind of 
digging through it, you must, you, you must be able to make sense of reality. Otherwise it wouldn't, you know, our, 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 our purpose in it would be, would be meaningless if we couldn't do that. But I think you hit the nail on the head of this like tension, right? It's almost like, I mean, one word for it would be schizophrenic, right? I mean, because our, our goals on one level, you're right. I think what, what most of us want is to, is to know and be known in, in a community that makes sense of the world and, 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 and knits together all of our different experiences. And yet everything in the world where we tell our stories in the avatar sense pushes us to disintegration and to reductionism, which I just don't think that can be healthy long-term. I suppose. Uh, I mean, it's, it's so to, to just nuance it a bit. It, it's 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 one of the ways of behaving online and 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 probably you know we're driven to be more specific about our public identity the more the more we're moving into a world of um you know monetizing me right um so it's 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 one thing if um you know we're doing um, it's one thing if we're doing a podcast as as a, a project of you know in exploration and and companionship and collaboration to you know we're not quite sure what we're going to find but but we believe in the exploration of unfamiliar territory of ideas and that's important to us and. And so it's all right if it's hard to define, you know, what is the value proposition of, of, of exploring with us, of, of being a part of the Atlas project. If, if this is our livelihood, if this is our business, then suddenly you're in a game of, you know, you, you've got to hit certain thresholds of, of audience size and and then you're in you know then you're in marketing mindset all right so who is our target audience what are the things that they are interested in right what are the what are the messages that speak to them you know how do we sort of draw the venn diagram between our value proposition and and their pain point and then and then let's get better and better at hacking the language that connects to those people makes them you know loyal like like all of that like this is well established sort of how you do sort of um you know b to c uh consumer consumer marketing and and right now and and you know we've and you've seen it too on clubhouse there are people who are who are just there to um experience conversation and 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 just you know kind of add to their day uh, a little taste of you know what it sort of is like to walk through the courtyard of a liberal arts college, let's say. And then there are people there who you know are are, are going to try to make a living as a teacher, <laughs> or to stand on a soapbox. And and there's probably a lot more effort put in, into trying to articulate a public story. Um, for for those who have more more intent about growing growing a public 
which then becomes really interesting, right? Because so, so to move this forward to this question of who owns your story now, you know, I, I guess the easy, obvious example to, to, um, to draw on is, is, you know, a, a, a populist like Donald Trump, where, you know, once you get good at reducing yourself to a persona that attracts other people to you, now those followers, you know, they can they can take over ownership of you. And and you find yourself, you know, in terms of the next chapter of your story, what choices are you going to make? Are they your choices? Or are, are they the choices that your audience expects in order for you to maintain that that persona that you've that you've given them, which, which has stripped away so much nuance? that is inside you, but now it can't get out anymore, which I think is really fascinating. It's interesting. You talk about Trump because it, it, you know, today it was just announced that there's this, this Facebook advisory. Board, oh, that's I right. Suppose, we should talk about of like 20 people or something. And they voted to maintain the permanent Facebook ban on Trump. And I just thought when I read that a couple hours ago, I thought, are these people working for Trump? Because it, it, it only sort of incentivizes like his brand, right? So it's interesting because when you think about ownership of stories, like Trump is one of these people that's got so, gotten so good at social media that he almost owns their story, right? And so now he's got this his own platform yeah. from, from the desk of Donald Trump that like it's going to blow up his own personal platform, right? I mean, this is just – it's fascinating the way – power works. And you just heard a really interesting piece about power that I thought was really excellent. Um, uh, and we can link to it in the show notes, which all of our listeners should read it. It's really a really great piece. But this is, you know, how power works in the ownership of stories. Like Trump is a user, right, of the platforms, but then he almost becomes his own platform. And he now he has his own platform, right? I mean, it's just it's just fascinating the way ownership of stories work where Trump has been somebody that has, I think, kind of been the icon for this question in some sense, right? Because he's really managed. But then again, at, at the same time, right? I mean, you, you could argue he has ownership of the story and yet he's so dependent on his followers, right? Like, I mean, he's, you know, this, I mean, a lot of Americans, myself included, think, you know, Trump has had no affinity for the conservative movement before he ran for president, but that was the movement where he could get traction and stuff. And now, you know, I, and half the stuff he says at his rallies, I'm sure even he thinks are absurd, but now his, like the Trump, the Trump constituency kind of owns his story. And, so also, he goes, and also his family's story and, and right, the, right. The stories of many people who have, who, who got into politics and then discovered that, you know, in a sense, this is the story that 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 empowers me, and and that is the dialectic, right? It, I suppose, what is what is uh, remarkable today is is if you can manage to um, tell your own story. And, and I'm not even sure what I mean by that, uh, but, but, and that work for you, right? That, that the sort of, it's, well, dot, 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 I'm not, I'm not quite sure where to take that thread, 
but I think I, I think this is you know rolling back about half an hour where you said that and now I'm kind of moving more to your point of view when you said that like you know we're not even conscious of of you know what is all happening um, in in the arena of the self and 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 some of this stuff the relationship we have with our audiences um, is 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 a huge huge dynamic in the development of the self and you know it has been a, a major theme um in in our lives over the past 20 years is as now now everyone has the capability you know we're no longer in a mass media age where it was sort of you know there were these gatekeepers to the ability to speak to many people it, it, everybody in theory has the capability to to grow an audience and so you know for 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 many people it becomes a question well, well should i shouldn't i and 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 probably none of us no one grapples with the question of of what of myself will I lose when I succeed at building that audience. I suppose I suppose in, in the mass media age, this is you know this is what celebrities um, always talked about with one another about how they've kind of you know now lost their sense of their their ability to be who they were. Um, you know, I guess stereotypical examples you know some some hollywood actor or actress becomes typecast and then they they decide no that's not who i am right i'm more than that role that you know me for and then and then either and then they have this kind of fateful decision around am i going to be who the audience has been trained to um believe i am or am i going to challenge that by by, you know, by doing a role that kind of breaks me out of my type i mean is tom hanks ever gonna do you know some kind of like he's the mad serial killer um probably not at this stage of his career because um, maybe he wouldn't be interested in but even if he were you know it becomes this question of would tom hanks do that and it's not a question that you're asking internally anymore <laughs> you're asking it of your of your of your public persona yeah, and also I think so. There's a second layer to the question, right? Because I think you're right on. Where everybody's got to think about this, like what 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 are the implications of how I'm telling my story? But also, I wonder the implications of people that create the mediums, the platforms where we tell our stories. And and do you even know? Like I'm just like I have Clubhouse on the brain, right? It's right now because I've spent a couple of weeks kind of intensely engaging it, and it fascinates me. And the fact that they've turned down a four billion dollar offer from Twitter means they must know something that this is, you know, this is catching on. Like, and I mean, you and I are recording a, a, a podcast on this medium and, you know, we had a pretty good system before this. I mean, we didn't, the thing wasn't broke. I mean, we didn't need to fix it and we're, and we're curious and, and kind of exploring, but, but I think about like Gutenberg, right. When he invented the printing press, he was a really pious traditionalist Catholic. And that, invention was probably the biggest thing to undermine the Catholic church in history, right? Because a couple decades later, I mean, there were predecessors to Luther, like John Huss, and I think he was a, a Czech, who just basically had a lot of Luther's ideas and got burned at the stake because there was no printing press. But Luther's 95 theses went across Europe in like two weeks, 
because of the printing press. And so, you know, you have this pious Catholic who creates this thing that basically births modernity, or, or at least births, uh, is a midwife to modernity. Of course, like, I wouldn't say Luther's a modern, but but it's a midwife to modernity. And Gutenberg, if you'd, if you'd, if you'd asked him, like, is this really what you want to do? What would he have said? <laughs> you know, like, 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 who owns the story of the printing press? Well, Protestants own that story. <laughs> I mean, like it was, it was the, it was the quintessential Protestant tool. Um, and, and Gutenberg had no conception of that. And I just wonder as people create these platforms by which and through which we tell our stories, does anybody have any idea what they're doing? And then, so if I can sort of build on that and, and explore another pathway, I mean, so, so, so far we've kind of looked at the question of one of almost like the struggle to maintain a sense of self and to, and to maintain a sense of ownership over the self. And, and in fact, the, the, the way the question is framed sort of implies that, you know, really in a perfect world, you would own your story. Um, and it kind of sucks that, that now there are these dynamics that means like in some ways you don't and, and you're, you're, you know, your especially, well, not especially, but, you know, for example, your future story is, is kind of not predetermined, but it's, it's constrained, it's shaped by this digital avatar that exists of you, this, this algorithmic understanding of the profile of Scott Jones that says, you know, I'm going to feed Scott Jones these kinds of contents because that's what he, that's what gets him to engage in the platform in a way that creates revenue for the platform. And so that's what we're going to do. And then that becomes the raw material for the next chapter of you. Okay. So turn it around. You know, I, I guess it's, it's also interesting to wonder at where is this going? This, you know, this sort of evolution of our sense of self perhaps toward a more social understanding of the self. And, and is that not a good development because, you know, our, our, our strong individuality always was a kind of a, a limitation to our understanding of what, what is real, of how we are connected, of how things like a, like a, a pandemic, you know, give give visible evidence to how well being, you know, is more is more a function of we than I in a lot of contexts. And in that case it kind of it's logical that it's well being and not ill being. Well, I'll have to think about that. But you know what I mean? So so there is this underlying reality where in which my individuality is 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 a fiction is a blindness is sort of missing some other aspects that are also true and and so in thinking about it that way does that that not suggest that you know becoming far more social about uh, my understanding of who is chris katarna it's not something that i just decide it's 
it, it exists in relationship to all these other people I touch and how they understand me, that that is somehow maybe actually progress. That's closer to what's true. What do you think about that? Yeah, like I think letting that's... go of the ownership rather well, than having it... It, having it, you know, a power against me. I mean, this is where oftentimes like post-modernity often echoes pre-modernity, right? Because I think as we're talking about this and you were, and you were talking, the point you were just making triggered something in my mind. I was thinking, well, you know, it, it's, it's just none of us ever have ownership of our own story, right? Because right. we're social beings in, in context. And so, you know, I, I just go back to medieval Europe because it's just the easiest thing for me to imagine, right? But I'm sure you, you, you're a China expert. I'm sure we could transfer this to China in the same time period or something, right? Like if you're if you're in medieval England or something, you know, in the 11th century, well, basically a combination of, of, of royalty and the Catholic church owns your story, right? Like there's, you know, the symbol structure and the, and the possibilities for meaning, unless you're a Jew and, and then which even there, I mean, like you, you know, there's some exceptions for Jews in, in certain tolerant periods where, where, where you could actually have a distinctive story from, from the mainstream. But by and large, your story would, would still be owned by someone else, right? I mean, you, you would, then you don't have, and, and, and with fewer choices, like Berger points out. But yeah, I mean, I, I think what's interesting is that what you're getting at is acquiescing to the communal dimension, right? We think we're individuals. Like, you know, if you're in medieval Europe, you don't have the illusion that you're an individual, right? I mean, that's just not. Right. I mean, it's impossible you, to. Yeah, yeah, you can't be an individual. It's just not. It's not on the menu, right? Um, it, it, what's interesting is when individualism is on the menu, but you realize it's not really nutritious and something that will sustain you, right? And so, what you're, I think what you're saying is this move to a more communal sense of of the story, but made from a position of self awareness and acquiescence and acknowledgement. Um, as opposed to, um, you know, a kind of pre-modern context where basically you don't have that much agency or choice. I mean, the thing that that is special about late modernity or post-modernity, whatever you want to call it, is just the amount of personal freedom to define yourself that relative to the rest of world history, it's just, it's just unusual. So that's really interesting. And, and listening to you, you know, walk through that and thinking about, you know, the thinking about how, how in, in a medieval context, the, 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 my social self is, 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 is far stronger and, I, I'm I'm fumbling toward an idea in my head, but I guess the the word that's ringing in my head right now is community, and 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 how you know if if who owns your story is a way of framing kind of the the fight for which individuals individuals versus their audience where is the power to the question of identity, then you know almost. 
how does the community help me understand myself is kind of, you know, is, is another angle on the same question. And it seems to me that's an interesting one for, for, you know, for us today, because, and I'm not a medieval scholar, so it, I'm, I'm making up a lot of things in my head, but I feel like there community does help you understand yourself does help you kind of anchor yourself but but community was also quite anchored in a physicality in you know in in a, a literal group of people around me and and it was a sort of in some ways a diverse group because you know in order for the community to be healthy and function you had to have different people doing different things and and so i understood myself in the context of that of that ecosystem you know, nowadays communities are are you know f often much more imaginary things, and so you know, I I remember I think this was I don't know if this is the first time we tried to record this conversation or the second time, but I remember we had a conversation about tribes versus communities, and and I had had I guess it was about a month ago when when we did. Um, uh, uh, a, a virtual campfire um, at base camp um, with several people from around the world. And one of the women I was in a room with, Cassandra, was talking about the distinction she came to understand um, between tribe and community and, and tribe being people who, who think like me and, and community being a sort of a richer diversity of people with whom I'm on sort of, I'm in a similar situation or, or, or we're in the same boat, but, but I don't, it's not as easy as they think like me. There, there's some differences there, but, but it's actually helpful. It, it helps, it helps me to more fully understand and explore myself that there, there are different people and different roles in this thing called community. And so I wonder if maybe that's, I don't know. I, I don't want to put too strong a point on it because it's very complex. But but maybe that's sort of one of the one of the one of the weaknesses nowadays in in terms of just you know as we, as we struggle with questions of identity in in a, in a social media age that that we've blurred the distinction between tribe and community, and so the the understanding of self that the tribe gives me is a kind of stunted understanding because there's just so much affirmation of what I've figured out so far that there's, there's less impetus to explore the dissonance and figure out what, what that means to who I am and to how I understand myself. Does any of that make sense? Oh, absolutely. No, I totally, I think it makes total sense. There's, it's funny because like my German is really terrible. Um, because I just like took it for reading stuff in graduate school, but um, Weber talks about this. The great you know, dean of you know sociology, um, he talks about Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, and Gemeinschaft is a little more like the tribe, right? Um, it's like community. The basic translation is community, and Gesellschaft is like society. Okay. And the Gemeinschaft, yeah, is more tribal, right? I mean, it's by nature, it's it's there are tighter bonds. But there's less complexity. It's just that's enabled by the Gemeinschaft, right? Because right. 
it, it, it by nature, it, it's ties. I mean, Jonathan Haidt has written about this, you know, the great moral psychologist. He's, he said morality evolutionarily for human beings does two things. It binds and it blinds, right? Like it binds the tribe together, the combined shaft together, the community together, right? But it doesn't, but as you get to the society, the gazelle shaft level, you need more tolerance for dissonance and things, right? Because the thing just gets bigger, right? And and you need ways to deal with dissonance, which the human brain hates dissonance, right? It's just evolutionary. In an evolutionary sense, we just don't like dissonance because it stresses us out, right? And so oftentimes the, 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 the hard thing is to just sit with dissonance, right? And, and the tribe is not going to let you generally – um, a get to the point of dissonance, right? And if you get there, it's going to rush you out of it, right? Because too much dissonance and the tribe will dissolve. Um, where the society or the gazelle chef, that kind of thing, almost by necessity, it evolves through dissonance. And and that, I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, I think that that is 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 you know, and you need. I mean, it's interesting because I think to be someone who sojourns in the society, right? Or, or the bigger, more complex organism, you, you kind of need people to base camp with, right? Around a campfire. You need people that will lend you courage to do it because it's just fighting human nature, right? Our nature is going to be to default into the tribe because it's it, it, it gives us security. Right. And, and it's interesting because who owns, I mean, ownership is really interesting because you, you know who owns the story in the tribe, right? The tribe owns the story in some sense, right? Because the tribes like binding and blinding is what actually makes the story possible, right? Your own articulation of the story in the context of the tribe. The hard thing is like who owns the, the, the story in the gazelle shaft in the society, Right. Because it, because it's more complex. Right. I, you know, I think if we had, if we had, you know, maybe like a mathematician in this conversation, I think this would be a good point to talk about fractals because it seems to me, you know, like fractals, basic idea that there are these patterns that recur at, at, at every, at, at different scales. So you kind of see a macro at a macro scale, you can see a pattern and at a micro scale, you can kind of see the same pattern. Um, and you know, this, so this, this question of story, you know, as, as individuals, um, in a society, we feel like we are engaged in this project to, you know, self narrate, to self legislate, to, to find significance and meaning. And, and that whole project, it is happening within another story, uh, right? Like, so at a society, like you're, you're part of an American story and, and, and all of your, all of your efforts to, 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 to self author are, are going to be shaped by a, a, a larger narrative that you're in, and not, not the only larger narrative, there are many overlapping identities and stuff, but in some ways it's going to be different from somebody from, you know, like me from Canada or 
um, you know, like Xiaoli from, from, from China. And, and, and so, you know, at, at that level, there is similarly this, this, this conversation where who's going to own the story of the 21st century, right? Is it going to be, you know, which, which civilization's project is going to prove to be, um, you know, the, the, the best project. And, and it's, it's really interesting now in, in an age where, you know, community and, and, and storytelling can be so uh, geographically diverse that, that the, the layers between sort of the macro and the micro are now really starting to blur. So I remember, I guess it was last week I was in a conversation. It was, it was actually a clubhouse conversation. I like to, I like to float around um, some of the uh, Asian conversations that are happening. And it was fascinating. There was this uh, group of people and many people from mainland China, many people from Taiwan, you know, having really interesting political conversations, but also very personal conversations about how policy decisions uh, were being felt at a personal level. So uh, I don't know if you follow Asian news much, but there have been a lot of basically uh, belligerent flyovers of, of mainland Chinese military aircraft over Taiwan. Yeah, I have uh, seen that. Yeah. Well, you're right. And, and so it was so fascinating for, you know, someone from mainland China to ask, so how does that make you feel? to someone in Taiwan and having someone in Taiwan talk about the, the kind of the loss of, of, of personal security and the growing sense of personal anxiety that this government policy has, 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 has made them feel is, is a kind of, if you think about it, a, a hyper modern occurrence that, that, you know, people from, from two different, you know, political stories would have a, you know, a, a personal exchange about how does, how does, how does, you know, um, a, a, a change in foreign policy make you feel <laughs> is a remarkable thing. And I, and I, I, I actually, I don't know how I'm going to connect this into the, into the question that we're asking ourselves now, but I, I guess it relates to these, these questions of the, you know, the community in which we anchor our understanding of, of who we are and, and to the possibility of a more, a more social self that, that has a, has a, I don't know, a, 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 a greater innate awareness of, of how social the self really is um i and and i know for example you know like national identity is uh one of those things that is is profoundly personal i mean you say anything bad about canada and i'm going to defend canada because why i mean i'm not even in canada i haven't lived there for 20 years but somehow i feel like it's a part of me and and that that might start to you know that we'll just have better better um i don't know experiences more more experience of 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 weaving shared story about um 
you know, things as, as provocative as national identity. I, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, too optimistic about the kind of world peace, but, but, but it's, it's fascinating that it's actually taking place. Now we have a next guest, Royfield Brown is, is, is here. All right. Dude, I'm going to have to go to bed soon. What up? There he is. Hey, Royfield. Are you guys, can I just ask, are you guys like on this app all day? Only when Royfield is. (laughs) I I, I only ever log on when Scott is. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's like some kind of. It's like some kind of evil. Yeah. There's got to be some kind of phrase for it. Some like some like uh, evil dialectic. <laughs> I can't get out. Um, I enjoy I enjoy waking up in in the morning and going for my run, and mm-hmm. uh, and 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 you two are inevitably in some you know small group conversation together, and and I can tell it's like it's got to be late for everybody in that room. You know, Scott sounds like he's had a few drinks. You know, Roy, Royfield is still you know buttery smooth and 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 dropping his his comments in dulcet tones but everyone else sounds like their voices are a bit hoarse and you know i imagine most <laughs> of them are, are are horizontal already and you know half of the people aren't responding because they've nodded off <laughs> i i did that last night where i woke up and i was still in a room and i'd been asleep for seven hours it, and there was me and two other people <laughs> that that was the first time I'd actually done that. But also, because uh, we're amongst friends here, you know, good, close friends. Um, I, I I think I kind of might have landed on Clubhouse yesterday. Like, I like I I have, like, some clout on the app. I, I, I logged on yesterday to see there's a room named in my honour. I was like, fuck me. What is it called? It was called the... Royfield and Aram accountability room because I met my first person from Clubhouse in real life. So Aram and I had drinks in San Francisco yesterday. We had a right royal time. And um, and then people were somewhat aghast. Marseille Butler, the case in point, that two of her posse had met up without running it by her first. <laughs> so she told uh, us that we need to account for exactly what It's a big, exactly big pyramid scheme. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you realize that, you, that you, know, you, you invite people in and then you own them and all their followers? There's, there's some dark cryptocurrency layer to the app. So Royfield, you are right now on an episode of the Atlas Project. So we're recording our podcast through Club oh. Day, which you told us about. And we're talking about who owns your story. That's our big question. So do you have any thoughts on who owns your story as a guy who's fairly astute in the newest form of social media, Clubhouse? Uh, we, we've been talking about how, you know, we when we create content and we generate this projected avatar self, you know, you kind of can... It's, it's a big question, like who owns your content? Who owns the story of, of who you are revealing yourself to be? So who owns your story, Royfield? Okay, like you dropped this one on me, but I think I can answer it and I think I have an analogy. So I am, goodness, Scott, what was that? That was me just warm, rubbing my hands together in, act, in anxious expectation of you answering. All right, cool. All right, well, as long as it's anxious and anticipation, I will continue. Um, 
So I am a black Brummie from England in the United Kingdom, which is part of continental Europe. Uh, I have Jamaican parentage. My wider cultural affinities are Western in the classic kind of liberal sense, etc., etc. Right, I could go on and on and on. And I am sufficiently aware that when I travel outside of my hometown, um, my identity can confuse. Not always, but it confuses quite often. So when I'm wandering around here in California, until I open my mouth, people think I'm African-American. And then sometimes people do a double take when I start to speak with a, an English accent. Because to them, uh, they're not aware that there are significant, there's a small but significant proportion of the British population is non-white. You know, it's not something which is portrayed on TV too much. It's not something which is in the popular culture, though, yes, there's Idris Elba, blah, blah, blah. But in the general consciousness of the average American, uh, black English people don't exist. Black British people don't exist. And I say this because I think it, it goes down to who owns your story. And I came to peace with this some time ago, mm. that dependent on where I am in the world, people will be confused by me that I say to myself, 51% of my identity is how I frame it. That is my story. So I call myself black and English. I don't deny my Jamaican heritage, but when I go to Jamaica, trust me, they call me English. Because I don't think like a native born Jamaican. My whole frame of reference for Jamaican society is actually through socialized English eyes. It doesn't matter whether I'm black or not. When I look at a Jamaican school, I compare my base norm to an English school. They don't have this or they do that. You know, they wear this uniform, etc. My base norm is English culture, full stop. So, but I understand that if I go to Greece, let's say, that that Greek person uh, who's in Greece, and I don't know what the ethnic minority population of Greece is, but it's much less than the UK. That that Greek person, and that could be really well-meaning, will be confused by me calling myself English. Now, I am English, but I understand where their confusion comes from. So I say this, who owns my story? 51% me, 49% it's in the eye of the beholder. And I think it's really kind of, important to un to understand that my what i call myself still trumps what they think that i am but i take it on board and i understand where where it comes from so when i mod a room because we are on clubhouse whatever i'm trying to do and i've just come out of a superhero room where we talked about uh, what superheroes mean to us and there were some great testimonies uh delivered there, people talking about reading scientific terms and being able to take those into school and impress their teachers. People talking about just uh, having a companion, you know, these superheroes were companions when, when they were kids reading comics because they, they grew up poor or grew up, um, you know, away, away from other kids, etc. What was I trying to do in that room? I'm just talking about my passion. Somebody else might take away something else from that room 
this wasn't just Royfield talking about his passion. This was Royfield talking about how pop cult, what this, what a certain bit of pop culture means to us in our formative years. What Royfield did was uh, to remind me of X. So what they take away from what I was doing is almost as important and almost as valid as actually what I intended. So I see this through, I come at your question through the prism of my understanding my identity and how other people perceive it. But I think it stands also for your question as to who owns your story. Royfield, that's really well said. And I, I feel like I connect. I, I, I've spoken about this in one of your rooms or maybe on the thing you had me on about identity. Because my father, I'm adopted. My birth father was Puerto Rican and my birth mother was Jewish. And I was raised in an Anglo working class home. Like my parents didn't go to college. And so, but I was raised in a majority kind of white town. And I often struggle with how to self-identify, right? Uh, it, it's always a, it's always a messy kind of essay question, not a fill in an oval question for me. Um, and yeah, I, so I feel, you're, I mean, it's obviously I don't have the same story you do, but like, I just, I, I do feel the, the weight of not knowing, like how much privilege do I have? How much do I identify as non-white and things like that? Like, it's always a mess for me. Um, and I always feel like on that dimension of my story, uh, I, I, I'm always ceding ownership to someone else and, and, and generally letting them define me. Yeah, no, I, I don't have that, that issue um, in terms of ceding ownership. As I said, you know, I think it's a 51, 49% thing. And I might be being generous with the 49%. But it's just to say that I still actually have ownership. I am whoever I want to be, right? That is that is my identity. That's how I, you know, when I get up in the morning and I go, right, you know, Royfield, you get back to attack a new day. I go, right, this is who I am, right? And no one can take that away from you. But we have to be aware of that other people's uh, opinions on us uh, can be valid. They can also be wrong. You know, if somebody was to say to me, you know what, you, you can't be black and English. I will have a philosophical fight with them. But I appreciate if they come at that with good faith, I appreciate, I can appreciate where they're coming at it from, you know, and I would talk about, well, um, who are the English? You know, it's the Angles, the Danes, the Jutes, the Saxons that came and classically are supposed to have pushed out the native peoples who were the Celts, then the Norman French, then the Vikings came along. That's the reason why we have Northern accents within England. That is, that is the echo of the Vikings. Then we have the Norman French that come along, which then changed the language. And that's the reason why we have swine and pig. One of them is Anglo-Saxon, one of them is uh, French. Then we have the Huguenots that come in. Then we have the, uh, the Jews that come in in the East End of uh, London, etc. I can go on and on and on. Right. No one can beat me on the history of who the English are. And <laughs> the sum total is, the sum total is, the English are always reinventing themselves. That's the point. So the fact that since 1948, we've had um, non-white people in this country in significant numbers, you know, a minority, but significant, somewhat to 13%, doesn't mean that I can't be English. You know, to be English isn't blood. It, is, it isn't blood. And even if it is blood, it redefines itself over generations. So fuck them, is what I say. 
right? But I appreciate if they come at the argument with good faith that they can legitimately be asking questions about identity. Now, totally legitimate, but the whole of human history, I then end with saying, is about emigration and migration. You know, there's only white folks in North America because they emigrated there and they pushed out the, the native peoples. Oh my God, the native peoples, they crossed over the Bering Strait on the land bridge, you know, uh, 20 centuries beforehand. They migrated from somewhere. You know, and, uh, so it's all about immigration and migration and redefining what it means to be uh, something, part of a tribe, you know. So um, I own that. I know what I am. But I appreciate that some people are always questioning it because um, there's nothing wrong with questioning me, but, you know, I'm English, so I own my story. So I, I just want to pick up on a couple of things that, that, that both of you said. One, one I, I love <laughs> I love this little, um, this little um, uh, beautiful gem of, uh, of language and, and, and uh, an imagery you gave me, Scott, of, you know, saying, like, you know, I... For me, it's it's less of a fill in, fill in the oval question and more of an essay question. I'm going to have to use that in in some clever conversation uh, in the next couple of days because I just I just love framing it that way. Oh, that's a, you're at, you you think that's a fill in the oval question? That is an essay question. You're going to have to give me like at least a thousand word limit to, to give you an adequate answer to that question. I'm applauding myself. Oh dear God! Now we have sound effects. That, yeah, that was the that was the uh, clubhouse sound effect clap. Oh, I've I've never used the sound effects. I'll have to oh go on and sort of pull Pandora's box there. But you know, one 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 thing that I found really interesting in what what uh, Roy Field you described is you 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 sort of a couple of times mentioned mentioned your own sort of sense of self as 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 something that's completed. You know, I wake up in the morning, I know who I am. And I think that's really interesting because, and we talked about this earlier um, earlier in the episode, you know, it, it, it kind of think about, you know, what it is to be alive in this modern moment. You know, part of it is this this vast expansion of 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 the project of kind of self-figuring out of 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 who am I and you know things that once were fate are now are now questions of choice and there's seems like every day there's more work to do just to um, make these choices um, about who we are and then and then the other side of it is you know this 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 massive expansion of the possibility of of a projected self. And you know, you as someone who works in social media, you you spend a lot of time, I imagine, um, you know, developing that projected self. And so, is it? I, I guess what you've described sounds like a, a project that's completed. But but I wonder if 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 it's if it's more dynamic than that. And and how do you experience? Or you know, yeah, do you have any thoughts on just you know the experience of? of the dynamic discovery of, of both your inner and, and projected self as, as, as someone who, you know, you, 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 I, I know you spend a lot of time in, in, in the projected world. Um, and how does that all kind of feed into one project of understanding who Royfield is? So I, I'm, I'm not complete. It'd be, I'd be utterly arrogant 
to say that, you know, I'm complete. And just as I explained how the identity of the English has warped and changed over centuries, ditto us as, as human beings. You know, we're not the same person that we were when we were three years old, let alone 13, 30 or, or 70. Okay, so uh, our sense of ourselves can change over time and should do. It should evolve. You know, we can't be static. You know, stasis is, is death, you know, in just about every organism. You know, you've got to continually grow and, uh, and, and evolve. So, so I do that. But I'm pretty confident um, in terms of who I am right now. But I'm also no, uh, self-aware enough to know that at some point I will change. I will become something else. So, so I think I think that that's that's pretty key. But in in, in terms of the whole notion of uh, projecting yourself, um, there's this oft over used word about authenticity. Be your authentic self, and if you are authentic, right. people will warm to you. And that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump did so well in two elections. I would say that he's a pretty odious man. But in lots of ways, Donald Trump was very honest. He was his authentic self. You know, he said, I'm rich. I got loads of money, bitches. You know, <laughs> he, he was authentic. Donald Trump, incredibly authentic. He wasn't trying to hide it. You know, he was like, you can look at a Mark Zuckerberg, let's say, who is a, a, a bona fide billionaire in the way that Donald Trump isn't. But Mark Zuckerberg, um, presents as an everyman, you know. Donald Trump is a key example of authenticity. And I think if you're operating in the media sphere, the social sphere, what's important is that you, you are your authentic self. Of course, it's only a slither of the complexity that makes you up as an individual. Yeah. You, that you can't go through, uh, you can't be on this app and say, you know what, I had an argument with my wife, my girlfriend, uh, my partner last night, and you know what, I hate the neighbour, she's a bitch, <laughs> he's an idiot, and whatever. That's not applicable, right? But you are yourself, you know. So who I project to be online is me. It's just not all of me. You've got to be authentic. Yeah, I wonder if there's a difference between being authentic and sincere. What might that difference be? Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, I think authentic. So first of all, I don't even know if Trump was authentic or fought authentic, right? Like, like. He projected authenticity, right? Which... Yeah, well, well, but that's it. We, we live in a, a media age where uh, perception is all. And people thought he was authentic. Not honest, but authentic. And, and, that, right. you know, and people voted for him in that, in that regard. Uh, because know, I think yeah, you could be sincere. I mean, you could be like, you could be sincere and really trying to be the best embodiment of your values and, and who you want to be without being crassly authentic, right? I mean, like, like without, like what you're saying, Riffid, like you're not, you're not just getting on Clubhouse or something and ranting about every personal thing, which would upend your own personal life. But I mean, I just wonder if there's something, 
more value laden and intentional to sincerity. I guess, you know, it's interesting, you know, this word authenticity. Yeah. And, and I love that you brought the word into the conversation, Roy Field. It's a, it's a word we haven't used yet in like the three times that we've attempted to record this podcast episode. It's been a bit of a horror story um, because it is such a giant um, and, and, and sort of commonly used word when it comes to the subject of self-story and narrative and 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 persona nowadays now i've never really i've never really stopped to examine it that's why like when you asked scott the distinction um i i honestly didn't have have a thought on it but but i suppose you know do you ever wonder if there's something inauthentic about people claiming authenticity <laughs> you know in the sense that is it when 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 people occur to us as authentic is that really what are are we really saying they they seem confident in their you know a, a, a opinion of who they are or 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 that who they are is is fine and and if someone isn't self-confident and so you know does equivocate and and tries to sense the mood of the room and what they ought to say before they say it is that is that inauthentic or is that just authentically you know who they are and 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 what their current status of of confidence and comfort with with the social situation is right like it seems to me that 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 we have a we have a quite narrow band of when behavior mm, that person is authentic when 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 if if I, I know i'm going down a rabbit hole now but do, do you know what i'm saying i wonder if we're using the word too selectively sometimes I mean, I think I'm pretty inauthentic in some ways in that I really do, you know, I was raised to really kind of be tuned in to what other people and how I think other people are thinking and feeling rather than just putting out there how I'm thinking and feeling. And that's just kind of an orientation that I, I grew up but, with. But, but, that's, but surely it's what you do with that thought and feeling though, isn't it? So if you walk into a room and you have your Chris antenna up and you go, right, this is the temperature of this room. These people think this, whatever this is. And that is diametrically opposed to what I think. And then you then go along with uh, the group think of the room. Well, then that's inauthentic, isn't it? That, that, that's wrong. Hmm. What I, what I, one of the things which I do on, on this app is I don't do it every day, so I'm not painting myself out to be some avenging, uh, liberating angel of the left. But quite often, a couple of times a week, I will deliberately go into a conservative room and I'll listen to debate. Sometimes you learn stuff. And I'll get up on stage and then I will temper um, what I say so mm. that they don't kick me off the stage for straight away or that they don't misinterpret me and it's one of the reasons why i enjoy this app 
because it's not Twitter where I've got to shout in 147 characters. I can, I can talk about um, white supremacy in a room full of people that don't think that it exists, think that America is a total meritocracy and if you just work hard, you will succeed. What I don't do is walk into a room like that and say, I believe white supremacy is a thing and you're all bastards. Number one, I don't think they're all bastards. Number two, I appreciate that I need to break down uh, my argument sufficiently so they can agree with each minor step. And my great trick uh, or thought experiment to use in this regard is to say affirmative action. Can anybody tell me what decade that came in to American uh, political discourse? There's always one of two answers. People go, the 60s or the 70s. And I go, what do you mean? 1960s, 1970s? And they'll go, yes. And I go, no. Affirmative action was first practiced by the British Crown in America in the 1610s when it gave land grants to white men. Ha. That, that was affirmative action. But you think that is an entitlement. But when... Um, the governing system is then recognizing that people have been excluded historically from entitlements. You see that as affirmative action and you think that's wrong. That's where I get to. You don't, my second point is not actually to raise that. Then I'll go through historically and I'll go and I'll come on to redlining and the GI Bill. And then I explain to them, can you see how weaponized language actually is? I say affirmative action, you think we're giving black people things which they don't really deserve. And you neglect when you've been given things because you see that as a norm, you're entitled to it. If you go into a room and you start like that, you'll be amazed how people say, hmm, I've never thought about it like that before, right. Royfield. Now, when I walk out of that room, I'm under no illusions that I've won them all over and they're all going to start voting Democrat. I'm, I wouldn't be so crass, but it gives them pause for thought. So going into a room and judging its temperature is a great skill, Chris, but it doesn't mean that you're inauthentic. It's what you do with um, your thought uh, and then with the group think. Hmm. I like and that. I would say that that's like sincerity. I mean, that's, you know, you're being sincere um, it's not inauthentic, but it's sincere. And I sincerely appreciate you coming in, Royfield. But I also sincerely appreciate that Chris needs to go to bed because he's in the UK. He's in, on English time. <laughs> this has been a long, <laughs> long recording. <laughs> this is our longest podcast ever. Uh, gentlemen, can I just quickly say, I have a work call I need to make on Zoom in 10 seconds. So the fact that I've been on your podcast has given me great joy. Uh, Chris, I've been saying to Scott for the last week that he's a bastard and he ripped you away from, from, my, from my embrace two plus years ago. Right? And I've never forgiven him for this. And that's, you know, There's more promises. of me to go around. I'm a renewable well, resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had open relationships. Well, listen, listen, gentlemen, <laughs> I'm doing Mid-Atlantic tomorrow. I'd love to have you on, on that show, of course. Oh, we'd I'm love to be on. It on, 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 a, on Clubhouse. But listen, I've got to go because my boss is now waiting for me on Zoom. But all thank right. you for including me on your podcast. Thanks. For yeah. Thanks, friends. And thanks. thanks to all our listeners for going through the, with this experiment with us. All right, Chris, I will talk to you soon. Scott, I really appreciated that. Let's talk soon. Okay, just stop recording. That was great. I'll stop too. I mean, good. That was fun. Good. good. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. 
Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.